Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek and for letting us be part of your day. Really appreciate it. Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about wet weather concerns. Could we be headed towards another spring like last year with all the flooding? We'll talk with Dennis Toddy. He's director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Also today, we're going to go around the world looking at some trade issues with Dave Salmonson with the American Farm Bureau Federation, what's going on with China possible trade deals with India, Kenya, and the European Union. We'll talk about those. And we'll talk with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about a judicial ruling recently that is connected to, related to, the Wild Free-Roaming Horses and Burrows Act. So that's coming up on today's program as well. So lots to talk about, but there's been a lot of talk going on at a meeting just recently on crop insurance. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report was there, and he joins us now. Jerry, thanks for being with us. Uh, what'd you, what was the takeaway from that crop insurance meeting? I think there's a general uh, concern and nervousness about the fact that there's been so much ad hoc disaster aid in the last few years. When the crop insurance program was set up in a big way in 2000, the argument was, there wouldn't need to be any more ad hoc disaster. But it turned out that it couldn't really handle uh, hurricanes, forest fires, some other, some other problems, and so Congress passed a couple of packages of ad hoc disaster aid. Now the hope is that crop insurance can be expanded to cover these areas in the, ne- uh, in the next period uh, leading up to the Farm Bill in 2023. Uh, the first one is a hurricane insurance option, and we'll see where they go from there. Hmm. Do you see any basic changes coming for crop insurance as far as uh, the government's uh, part of it and in their support of it? Do you see them cutting back any more on that and more than going on to the farmers? Or, or what was discussed in those areas? Well, of course, the, uh, President Trump in his budget has called for cutbacks in the, in the uh, premium subsidies. Uh, but that's been proposed many times before, and the, but the, the cuts have always been opposed and successfully opposed by the farm groups and the crop insurance industry. So I would say that on that point, there's, uh, the, you know, they're just going to fight that as much as they can. And uh, if, the, if the trend lasts, uh, they will win that. Now, Mike Conaway, the ranking member on House Agriculture, and also the former chairman of the committee, uh, told the group that his biggest fear about crop insurance is a fraud case, a big fraud case, because that would get on 60 Minutes, and that could damage public opinion about crop insurance and agriculture. So uh, there, is, there is always that concern, uh, and uh, a number of speakers, mostly from farm groups, uh, said that they have to be meeting new members, lobbying, uh, getting acquainted in the next couple of years before the farm bill comes up. Yeah, I say that's a that's a very real concern because there are already some uh, 
uh, you know, misperceptions in the in the public's mind. I think about crop insurance already. Well, yes, there um, uh, there are, uh, but in in general, I think especially if you look back over the past year, uh, people are very aware that farming has been very difficult. The general public does know about all the 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 not drought so much, but the floods and and. Uh, they hear about the harvest delays, and I think that the, that those big issues do uh, uh, do help the farmers keep their programs when the public is when the public is aware of that. However, there uh, there is also criticism because of the ad hoc payments and the disaster aid, and it's likely that the conservative groups. Uh, the, the ones that don't want to spend any money on agriculture, like the Heritage Foundation, and the more leftist groups, like the Environmental Working Group, which wants to spend the money on other things, will join forces once again. Uh, the one thing that came up here, I asked the guy from Ducks Unlimited about the fact that Farm Bureau said it wanted to get rid of the swamp buster provision, which says that, you, that farmers can't get benefits if they, if they break up wetlands. Uh, and uh, he said that Ducks Unlimited was very disappointed in the Farm Bureau vote on that. Uh, and uh, so it looks to me like if, if Farm Bureau goes forward with this, there's going to be uh, problems in getting conservation support for the, for the crop insurance program. We have seen, Jerry, in recent years more crops included in coverage under crop insurance. Do you think we'll continue to see more coming into the program? Yeah, yes, I think uh, I think there will be. Uh, uh, Robert Gunther, the lobbyist from the United Fresh Produce Association, said that many fruit and vegetable growers, specialty crop growers, uh, still see crop insurance as a an opportunity. Uh, I mean, you know, it's always been harder to develop policies that work uh, on these uh, crops that do not have wide acreage. Uh, but I think they'll be uh, they'll be trying uh, uh, trying to do uh, more of that, uh, and that broadens the support for crop insurance, brings more uh, growers of different crops uh, into the fold of people who support it. Every farm bill gets tougher to pass. I can't imagine what this next go round is going to be like. Uh, it's it, it'll be a real struggle, won't it? Well, I think there will be, although there was an argument that the uh, last farm bill, uh, you know, went on a, went through on a very big vote, uh, and there had been hope that the next farm bill might just be almost an extension of that bill. But now I think there'll be a lot of controversy over the money, over the ad hoc disaster money and the market facilitation uh, program payments. Uh, the, the, that when people start looking at the total money, amount of money that the government has spent on farmers uh, during the period of the current farm bill, it's going to be huge. Yeah, it passed by a big margin, but once, only after they moved some things from the SNAP debate, you know, took them out of that uh, vote and kind of pu- pushed them off, which which are now being dealt with, uh, at, you know, as separate. But I think. As long as that's part of it, there's always going to be a tough uh, battle to get the, the uh, farm bill passed. Well, of course, if you didn't have the SNAP program in there, I don't think you could get the farm bill through at all because all those urban members of the House uh, uh, wouldn't wouldn't vote for it. 
But Mike Conaway noted that the cuts that the, that the Trump administration is making are likely to be a part of the discussion next time. And I would imagine, since the Democrats are likely to remain in control of the House, uh, that, that, what, that what they'll want to do is reverse some of the cuts that the Trump administration has made. So there will be a battle over it, but I don't think this time it'll be from the right. It'll be from the left. Yeah, it's interesting. SNAP makes many feel, as you said, that you have to have SNAP in there to pass a farm bill, but in many ways SNAP makes it harder to, to pass a farm bill. It's an, it, it's an interesting catch-22. Well, Jerry, thanks for the, the report from uh, the crop insurance meeting. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, always good to talk to you, Mike. All right, safe travels. Take care. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Up next, we talk about the wet weather as we head to spring. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgrill variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel diesel that doesn't mess around. Corn, soybean, and cotton growers are in a race against time when it comes to -to hard-to-kill weeds. Interline herbicide from UPL works fast to eliminate some of the most challenging glyphosate-resistant weeds, including pigweed, water hemp, mare's tail, and ragweed. Interline can be used as a burn-down treatment or as an over-the-top treatment in glufosinate-tolerant crops, including Liberty Link varieties. Ask your retailer or UPL sales representative about Interline, and always read and follow label directions. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, talking with John Doggett, CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, there's no doubt the climate change discussion is not going away. And that's why this low-carbon fuel policy, especially if it expands into more states, offers a great opportunity for the biofuels industry. Absolutely. And, and the corn plant is a wonderful plant. It, it, you know, through photosynthesis, it takes carbon out of the air, puts it in the soil, which is good for the soil. And in the meantime, it, it produces protein and energy. And uh, that that is, is it's remarkable, the changes we've had in our industry. Uh, one of our board members says, if you haven't been on a corn farm in the last five years, you haven't been on a corn farm. And and that's so true. The technology that our folks are using is amazing. And the fact that we can address what is one of the most pressing issues in, around the world is a pretty great opportunity. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the Foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. 
They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today, 800-745-3327, 800-745-3327. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. There's growing concern that we could be headed for a repeat of the flooding in this spring that we had last year. Let's talk about it with Dennis Toddy. He is director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you have those concerns? Do you share those concerns that uh, we are kind of set up to repeat much of what we saw last year? Maybe not as bad, but uh, something similar? Well, I, I, I hate to say repeat because there's so many bad images that brings up for people from last year, but the setup has some similarities to it depending on where you are, that we definitely have wet soils going into uh, going into the, the start of when we're we're starting to talk about field work and and also we have some you know wetness issues that depending on the additional precipitation uh could lead to some additional flooding conditions so it's it's i agree with a lot of my climate services partners that uh people should be watching out and being aware of the current conditions because there is real potential for for some problems again this spring perhaps even in a wider area than last year because it has stayed wet uh, throughout the year in many places and uh, just haven't ever really fully recovered from last year. You're, you're really correct. I mean, there's there's always differences from year to year, but, but I mean, Certainly, we got wet last fall uh, across uh, much of much of the Corn Belt and even into the Northern Plains. And if you look at soil moisture issues, actually the Northern Plains are probably wetter. And I'm talking about uh, Montana, Dakotas, parts of Minnesota, maybe wetter this year than they were going into last year. So certainly, when you're talking water issues in that area, and you've got some rivers that are still at flood stage, like the James River in South Dakota is at flood stage already. It's it's been that way since last fall. Uh, the eastern corn belt, uh, you know, we, we have had some more recent dryness from parts of Iowa extending over to, uh, you know, through the I states a little bit um, that, you know, maybe gives us a little better feeling on things, but uh, there's still real is- issues. Um, the, the other thing that I've heard from, from talking to a lot of people around, uh, we've not been as cold this winter, and because of the lack of cold the, you know, we don't have very deep frost depths. That has allowed tiles to run everywhere I've talked to people. has allowed tiles to run. So we've been able to remove some of that water and reduce the risk somewhat. But I don't want people to take that as, okay, things are going to be great. But at least, uh, the, the, you know, the warmer winter has bought us, I think, a little bit uh, from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I talk about this with Bryce Anderson at DTN quite a bit. Uh, we may not be set up for another polar vortex like last year, but 
because of the saturated soils, even normal precipitation in some areas will cause real problems. Uh, most definitely, most definitely. Even you know, even average precipitation in places like you know the northern plains. Uh, and and some of the wetter areas and and, and, the, and the rest of the Corn Belt would not be good. Um, and, but it's also not only amount of precipitation; it's timing of precipitation. Uh, you know that was the other problem we had last spring is we had we had we had a, a lot of rainfall records in some areas, but then we had relatively cold temperatures, especially in in May, and we had you know re- repeated events. We couldn't get uh, you know a, a week without any kind of rainfall to let things dry out. And uh, you know there were parts of the Corn Belt, especially Iowa. Uh, some guys in Southwest Iowa said there was one big event that we missed that uh, let us get in and get things moving that other people's people had. So it's we've we've also got to keep amounts in mind. And 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 uh, the frequency of them. How, how you know? How often are we getting them? Yeah, I guess we always talk about it in the spring, but more so in recent years. These windows and uh, of opportunity, and it's tougher when it's so wet because you don't always get a window long enough, really, to to dry out enough to get going in some places. We saw a lot of that last year. Uh, most definitely, uh, most definitely. Uh, you know because. Uh, we, you know, if if you look at the longer term data, and there are several studies that have, that have indicated this, you know, we're getting wetter in the spring, and then getting getting wetter in the spring. A number of field work days that are reported, we're seeing a reduction in the number of field work days. Uh, so uh, that's you know, people are trying to adapt by using larger equipment and, and get around some of these issues. But when you're trying to do a larger number of acres, it takes a real management, and you've got to get some of those windows to be able to get those in, and and those don't always exist. So I mean that's why we're always encouraging people to do good soil management so that they, uh, you know, that they they take better care of their soil so we can deal with some of these larger rainfall events and and to take and be able to take advantage of windows when they do occur, uh, but not do long term damage to their soils. That's the concern that that I had after last year, and I I've asked people that at talks that how many people think we did some long term damage because of of people you know getting caught behind and trying to get things in and get things out. And we've got had a lot of hands raised that we were concerned about compaction issues. So that's why we, you know, you're doing a good thing here of, of trying to get people thinking ahead about, okay, if I get delayed again, what can I do? What should I be doing? It's better to start thinking about those things right now than being caught, you know, in, in the middle and the, the latter part of May going, wow, I, I still can't get there. Hopefully we won't have that, but it's better to start thinking now than, than trying to catch yourself behind the eight ball. We're talking with Dennis Toddy, director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, what about some of the uh, areas that are typically dry, Oklahoma, Kansas, some of those areas? Where are they as far as uh, uh, soil moisture as we head towards spring? Actually, you know, most it, it's really funny. If you look at the eastern two-thirds of the country, uh, there's really very little area, like I'm talking about like on the drought monitor, conditions there are actually pretty good. You know, the only places we're really seeing on the, on the drought monitor right now of, of where there's any kind of an issue is, you know, parts of western Kansas um, and, you know, parts of Colorado, uh, a few of those spots. But for the most part, uh, you know, much of the of the northern and eastern part of the country really is is you know there's it's really drought free. It's really amazing. Uh, the, the the new map will come out tomorrow, but the most recent one from last week had 
you know, some issues showing up in Colorado and the western Kansas and a little bit easing up in the southwestern uh, Nebraska. But really, uh, the rest of the northern plains, Corn Belt, eastern part of the country, uh, um, water is not an issue in most of these places. It's, it's excess water that we're more concerned about right now. And when we look to the south, where planning is either getting underway or about to get underway, we know that some areas of the south have already had flooding conditions this spring or, or late winter. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, some, we continue to have more of these big events, uh, you know, problems in Mississippi. Um, you know, Texas has been not had as many as many, many uh, issues. Uh, and I've seen reports of, of, you know, harvest progress start or excuse me, not harvesting, but planting progress starting down there. Um, one of the other concerns we have seen, though, is, you know, with this warm winter is that uh, some wheat folks, some of the winter wheat folks over in Ohio had reported that uh, they had winter wheat greening up in January. Um, mm. That and, and you know, some more perennial crops, people who have any kind of perennial crops, those have started started moving because of of the uh, the warm conditions so that is something else not only on the dryness side but the the warmth is, has has this real concern that way the wheat may be okay but some of those other crops uh, that are more susceptible, more susceptible to freeze conditions we're still too early way too early for that to be happening based on uh, potential for freeze and after all the prevent plant acres last year it was just assumed those would be coming back into production this year but i have to think some of those may not get planted again this year um, when you start looking at, you know, the wetness conditions in, you know, the, 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 you know, those, the, the worst hit areas, say the Eastern Dakotas and Western Minnesota, and you get some other pockets too. Uh, but, you know, you have to remember that North Dakota is still is around 50% of the corn is still sitting in the field in North Dakota. So you've got to get that out of there before you can start doing anything else. So that's a real issue. And people are still trying to, to, to move. Uh, I've seen, things on Twitter, people still moving to try to get the corn out of there, but it's it's still hard to do that. So uh, definitely prevent more prevent plant acres uh, could very well come into play this year because of the wet, the ongoing wet conditions pending what happens this spring. So, um, you know, that's why, again, I'm encouraging people to think ahead and start looking at their plans now for what, what their situation could be and, and, and some alternatives if we continue to be this way going through the spring. Those times where we were headed into planting time wondering if there would be enough moisture to get the crop up and going, uh, get the plants up and going, those seems like a long time ago now. Some people think about those with with uh, with some fondness right now. I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look back and, and think about like 2012. You know, the the drought in 2012 was really bad, but that was the year that I think we put 50% of the corn crop in in a week because things were so dry going in. How quickly they were. More frequent has been our issue where we've got excess moisture and we're trying to deal with those excess moisture issues. All right, Dennis. Thanks for the update. Thank you. Happy to do it. You guys take care take care. Dennis Toddy, director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Up next, we talk trade with Dave Salmonson with the American Farm Bureau Federation right here on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. 
In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419 GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Corn, soybean, and cotton growers are in a race against time when it comes to -to hard-to-kill weeds. Interline herbicide from UPL works fast to eliminate some of the most challenging glyphosate-resistant weeds, including pigweed, water hemp, mare's tail, and ragweed. Interline can be used as a burn-down treatment or as an over-the-top treatment in glufosinate-tolerant crops, including Liberty Link varieties. Ask your retailer or UPL sales representative about Interline, and always read and follow label directions. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Grain futures on the Board of Trade fall ahead of the start of the USDA's Agricultural Outlook Forum in Washington. Beginning on Thursday, grain traders are taking signals from previous USDA reports showing higher than expected world inventories as a sign that the outlooks to be released at the conference will not be bullish for U.S. crops. However, there is still a possibility that the USDA's outlook for 2020-2020 may be more hopeful than expected. Corn futures on the Board of Trade fell 0.4% overnight, while soybeans fell 0.6% and wheat fell 1.2%. An hour into the trading session, May Minneapolis spring wheat down seven and a half cent at 5.42. The July contract down six and three quarters at 5.50 and three quarters. May Kansas City wheat down 11 at 4.82 and a fraction. May Chicago wheat down 11 cents at 5.54. May soybeans trading seven cents lower at 8.95 and a fraction. July down seven at 9.07. May corn down three and a fraction at 3.84 and a quarter. July down three at 3.87 and a half. The rally in lean hog futures that started last week appears to have extended to a fourth session with triple-digit gains in the complex. Traders are not clear on the size of the tariff reduction China is expected to make as part of its phase one trade deal obligations. It appears that pork would be the main interest of Chinese buyers in order to stave off the shortage in pork seen in the country due to the African swine fever. May lean hogs trading $1.75 higher at $75.27, June up $2.05 at $83.42. April feeder cattle up seven at $141.85. May down two cents at $143.75. April live cattle down 15 at $120.45. June down 20 cents at $112.02. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. 
You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Let's get a trade update with Dave Salmonson, Senior Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Dave, thank you for joining us. Uh, What's the latest with China dealing with both African swine fever and the coronavirus and how that impacts their purchases of U.S. ag products under Phase 1 of the trade deal? Well, for Phase 1, we have to remember that it just went into effect. Last Friday, February 14th, was the effective date for the Phase 1 deal, even though it was signed uh, about a month ago. So now it's just uh, just entering there. And, of course, we haven't seen, uh, you know, we don't expect to see any uh, changes yet. Hopefully we will over, we will over time. Uh, coronavirus, certainly we're hearing reports of uh, lack of being able to work ships, uh, you know, not enough uh, dock workers there. A lot of people still forced to stay home. So we hear about some diversions of some cargoes going other places because they just didn't have a place to uh, unload in China yet. Um, So we don't know. I mean, that seems to be a function of time of whenever this uh, hopefully runs its course and people can get back to work and the uh, ports can again operate uh, normally. So that's uh, that's something everybody's watching closely. They have indicated, though, some willingness to go ahead and honor the commitments make purchases because i know there have been concerns speculation it wouldn't happen until later in the year but there have been there's been talk out of china that they would start fairly soon well there has and they did just recently uh, offer that uh, they would entertain uh, applications for waivers from their their importers the country the companies that import into china on a wide variety of products including a lot of ag products so uh, they know that they, uh, you know, they need products. They're taking the steps necessary to uh, grant waivers of the tariffs that they put on, the retaliatory tariffs. So that would make then, of course, our products competitive. You, know, you have to remember also there's a, there's a line in the trade agreement uh, that was just signed, the Phase 1 agreement, that says that uh, purchases, purchases by China will be made on a commercial basis at market prices. Well, that means they, uh, you know, they, they will buy when, it's, uh, when it uh, fits them to buy. Even though they made these commitments, they really don't want to go out there and be paying a lot more than they could buy, say, the same product from another, com- another country. But if they can buy and not have these tariffs on top of it, if their importers can buy without the tariffs, then our product is competitive. And, uh, again, hopefully we'll start to see uh, that have an impact uh, shortly. Well, let's switch to India. Uh, it sounds like there may be something done on a trade deal there. Uh, indications from the White House, it would kind of be a, a, a phase one type of deal there with more to come later. What are you hearing? 
Yes, that is seems to be, you know, the president will be there, I believe, next week. I think there's a desire even uh, while he's there or soon thereafter to, to have a deal. Uh, some of the uh, issues they're talking about, they're talking about some dairy, um, you know, cherries, uh, things like that. Some things that uh, India needs, uh, would like to um, move ahead with. Um, not anything that's going to be really big. I mean, we think we could sell a lot more uh, corn in India, distillers' grains, ethanol, all kinds of things that uh, definitely we could sell to India. But, of course, they have a lot of tariffs. They have a lot of tariffs. Um, they have a biotech approval process that's very, very slow. And so it's having a lot of obstacles to moving these products uh, into India. But I think that, uh, you know, maybe we could move uh, back uh, to selling a lot more of almonds and walnuts and apples and things, things that they've, uh, because the U.S. took away their, uh, their advantages to the generalized system of preferences last year, uh, where they had tariff-free uh, access to the U.S. for a lot of their products um, now, and they cut back on buying our products, especially those ag products. So we hope they can make a deal, at least for the short term, gets us kind of back to where we were and maybe make some uh, additional gains and sets us up for a, a broader, more comprehensive trade deal in the future with India. We're talking with David Salmonson with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Let's turn to Africa, Kenya specifically, but in general, Africa. Uh, I talked recently with Undersecretary McKinney, and they're looking at uh, getting into the, more into that African market. What do you see as the potential there? Well, if you're just talk, talking Kenya, I mean, there's certainly potential for growth there. We sell them about $37 million a year. Uh, some grains, other products, obviously not a, not a big market, but certainly capable of improvement. From them, we buy about $130, $140 million a year, primarily coffee and tea, uh, products like that. So, you know, we can grow there. But I think the point that the administration is trying to make and what everybody's looking at is, is this a gateway? Is doing with Kenya then the beginning of having more inroads, uh, being having uh, more influence with neighboring countries to perhaps lower their barriers to develop markets throughout Africa, uh, especially sub-Saharan Africa, where we just don't have as much presence as, uh, as we would like. Um, so this could be a very interesting beginning uh, to, a, uh, to new and growing markets, uh, certainly an awful lot of population growth in Africa, a very young population, uh, their economics are improving, so lots of opportunity there for uh, for American farmers and ranchers and all of our uh, associated companies to get into there and to sell more. Let's switch to Europe. Still a lot of challenges there. Maybe we should focus on the U.K. Do you think something will get done there uh, in a trade deal anytime soon? Well, it could. You know, there's so many uh, things to work through, but hearing now potentially talks between the U.S. and U.K. could begin in March. Of course, we have our negotiating objectives. In fact, they were done a year ago. The United Kingdom hasn't put theirs out yet. Uh, they have things to work through, but they're hoping they get their set of objectives out in March. And uh, then, might say, the official formal talks could begin. There have been behind-the-scenes discussions going on for over a year. And, uh, you know, a lot of the issues with the U.K. from the ag point of view, of course, and it's an interesting point for the U.K. They're out of the E.U. politically, but they're still in it as far as all the rules and the trade and everything. They haven't separated from that yet. 
So they're still bound by all the standards and stuff the EU has had. So part of the U.S. approach, and certainly for U.S. agriculture, is to have the U.K. Uh, change, not be uh, have the same standards for our, our uh, meat imports to them and all the barriers that the EU has had and have a better regime for geographic indications, for biotech approvals, you know, but they're still in that system. So they have to, the same time they want to negotiate with us, they're involved in a negotiation with the European Union on the trade deal. And so they have to walk this line of how far can they get away from the EU standards and still have their markets with the EU. So this will be a developing issue uh, as this year goes on. Of course, as the way it's set up legally, they have to make their trade deal with the EU first before they can sign a trade deal uh, with the U.S., but it doesn't mean we can't come to a, an agreement this year uh, on most of these issues and then potentially finish it up later. Always complicated with Europe. Because of our history and the baggage that uh, is there to try to overcome, some pretty big differences between the U.S. and EU on a lot of these different issues. Well, there are, and a lot of these go back uh, decades and decades. A lot of history there on dealing with poultry. You can go back to the 60s. Of course, the cases on the beef hormones, those were started in the mid-80s. So a lot of these have a a lot of uh, baggage to them. We always have to remember we still, as a market, we're selling into the European Union countries over $12 billion a year. They're still one of our top export markets. We import more from them than that, probably about $23, $24 billion of all kinds of products. So, and it is, uh, you know, developed part of the world with over 500 million people, even now that uh, Britain has left. So, you know, tremendous market, tremendous opportunities. Everybody's interested in doing more business there. Uh, but we have an awful lot of entrenched barriers to contend with in dealing with the uh, European Union. Meanwhile, the good news, uh, the U.S.-Japan trade deal seems to be off to a good start, although we have to watch that coronavirus situation there as well, uh, see if there's any uh, outbreaks in Japan. could be a similar situation as in China if that slows things down there at all. Well, that, that, that is a concern in all those countries where this is uh, getting a foothold, unfortunately, and hopefully it doesn't uh, happen in Japan, even though we keep seeing all the, uh, the stories and watch the, the, the film of that uh, cruise ship and such. Um, but, yeah, the Phase 1 agreement is going into place. Japan is uh, reducing their tariffs on a lot of our exports uh, on the schedule that they agreed to, and actually beginning uh, after May 1st. Uh, both the U.S. and Japan, could start the phase two of their negotiations, which would uh, get to some of the rules uh, rules changes that we'd like that uh, weren't involved in phase one. Uh, some of the commodities that think uh, they really didn't get a lot of attention in phase one, some dairy products, rice. So there's issues uh, for U.S. agriculture to be involved in and to want to have a phase two of the U.S.-Japan negotiations and end up with a very comprehensive free trade agreement with that country. But uh, so far, uh, things are working out uh, as far as Japan living up to their agreements in the Phase 1. Yeah, that seems to be a real bright spot right now, the trade deal with Japan. All right, Dave, uh, always a lot of moving parts. Thanks for the update. (laughs) You bet, anytime. Take care. Dave Salmonson, Senior Director, Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation, an update on trade. 
Well, there was a recent ruling in a case related to the Wild Free-Roaming Horses and Burrows Act. We're going to talk with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, about that ruling and its implications moving forward on this issue. Stay with us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ1859 GTLL had a 2.9 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in South Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready. And health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. If your soil could talk, what would it say? If it's healthy, it may already be saying some good things about your future. Because farmers who use soil health building systems that include no-till, cover crops, and diverse species and rotations report greater productivity, profitability, and resiliency to weather extremes. Learn more about what your soil is saying about its health and your future. Contact your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. 
It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Zenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you what you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests who are important to the ag industry. It's information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, talking with USDA Undersecretary Ted McKinney, we hear a lot about those in agriculture skeptical because of all the problems we've had with Europe on so many ag fronts. What do you see coming as far as ag trade with Europe? Well, they continue to hold at some level to their stated desire that a deal be reached minus ag. Then there are shades that suggest that that's modified some. The issue, though, is the precautionary principle, which sounds like a good thing, but is absolutely a horrific thing for the world, continues to get in the way. It has a stranglehold on Europe. Maybe UK is soon to be the exception. We hope that. And it's just choking things. Every time we find access for a product of one form or another, the precautionary principle finds a way to negate that sale and we get shut out. We've been flat for six years in U.S. food and ag sales to Europe. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Did you ever ride your bike with a clothespin and a baseball card? Or use a typewriter for a school paper? Then here's a timely alert. Americans born from 1945 to 1965 are five times more likely to have hepatitis C, which often has no symptoms, but is a leading cause of liver cancer. The good news? Treatments are available that can cure hepatitis C. Talk with your doctor about getting a blood test for hepatitis C. Know for sure. A message from the CDC. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. I want to discuss a recent ruling on a case related to the Wild Free-Roaming Horses and Burrows Act. Here to tell us about it is Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this particular case and this ruling. So this is a, a really big win on, on the horse issue uh, for those of us in the West that have uh, been fighting this battle for a really long time. Uh, this happened in the, uh, uh, the district court here in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, the American Wild Horse Campaign, which is one of the uh, groups that is forever litigating these gathers of horses across the West, I, I litigated a, a proposed gather in the Caliente uh, complex in Nevada. This is one of those sort of critically overpopulated areas where 
where uh, years ago the BLM determined this just doesn't work and we need to get the horses off this, off this area. They, they tried to gather them, and, and what we often find in this rough terrain in the West is you can't gather them all. You know, they're in the back country and they're, they're hard to access. And so they ended up with this remnant population of about 1,700 head of wild horses. In trying to regather them, um, the, uh, the activist community litigated again. And then the ruling we got from uh, Judge Howell uh, is, is a really clear uh, uh, endorsement of the need to manage these, these animals. And, and he goes into detail in his, in his opinion about the, the intent of the Wild and Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act and, and the fact that you know, these horses were intended to be managed. Uh, the, 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 the split we always see is, gosh, if you just got the cattle off, there'd be room for the horses. Well, it's not really a, a fair comparison, as you know, because we're managing the cattle in a, in a really complex way. It's a, it's a highly technical business in 2020. The horses, on the other hand, uh, have no management, and, and their numbers far exceed uh, what those resources can support. So the judge coming back and reaffirming that, that the BLM is well within its boundaries to, uh, to, to, to move forward with this gather is, is really the kind of backing that we're looking for uh, to just simply enforce the rule of law. You know, the, the Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act would do what we need it to do if it was simply allowed to work the way Congress intended. Um, so this is, a, this is good news. This is, a, this is real progress for us on this issue. Okay, so how does this impact things moving forward as far as management of these horses? Well, it, it's, it's a critical step in this process because, you know, if you'll recall, we came to an agreement last year, uh, the NCBA, the Public Lands Council, Farm Bureau, and others, with a few of these groups, uh, the, the Humane Society of the United States, ASPCA, and Return to Freedom among them. Uh, uh, the key with that is that those three groups don't litigate on these issues. Uh, they lobby on them. And, and what we agreed to in that, in that agreement essentially was that we would work towards more funding to gather these horses and find off-range holding for them um, and, and kind of step back from pushing for the, the unlimited sale rider to be removed. And that's the, the, the rider that would allow folks to, um, to sell those for, uh, for processing or whatever else. And we've secured some funding for that in the last funding bill, about $21 million additional dollars. So helping BLM to use that money to gather on the ground is really job number one. So their ability to win in court and demonstrate that that's a rightful action to, to gather those horses is key to them being able to use those resources to actually get ahead of the population. And, and that matters right now because we're at 88,000 horses on range. And as we sit here right now, uh, looking at a spring where we'll see a full crop, uh, about 20% recruitment rate uh, in, these, in these horse herds, that means that we're going to see another you know, 15 to 20,000 horses hit the ground here in the next two months. That will outstrip the BLM's ability to gather, regardless of resources. So we are at an event horizon point in this issue right now, um, and it's critical that BLM not just have the resources, but the ability legally to move forward and, and do their job. So uh, a clear path in court that, that, that sets that, that uh, uh, legal precedent that, yes, in fact, they can go out and do their jobs as Congress intended, really helps us move the ball forward for responsible management. Do you anticipate more legal action on this? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I have a two-year-old son. I'm going to send him to law school because he'll be litigating these issues 35 years from now. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you uh, that there's going to be a silver bullet here and that we're going to be able to put this issue to bed um, until we get down to a point where we have a manageable number. And, you know, the, the, the Act set that number at about 26,000 on-range animals. We have 88,000 today. Until we can get that population down to a point where we can manage them responsibly, 
uh, these activist groups will keep coming. And, and you know, they, they often leverage equal access to justice and federal funds to, to, uh, to wage these lawsuits, which means they're not coming out of their own budgets, which makes them pretty self-sustaining. So, uh, you know, this is not an issue that's going away, but we are working towards a situation where we can get those numbers down, and that'll relieve that pressure in the long run. If over the next 10 years we can get that number from 88,000 down to 50,000 or 30,000, a lot more options become feasible at that point. You know, adoptions start to really help us offload those excess horses, where right now it's kind of shooting a BB gun at a tank. You know what I mean? We we just have too many to process in that way. Um, So as long as that's the case, we're we're still going to see a lot of litigation. But setting that record in court uh, maybe dissuades a few of those or, or puts them to bed earlier moving forward. But getting down to that, what you consider a manageable number, he's got a long ways to go. We have a long way to go. And, and the problem is the, the resource conditions on the ground are getting worse all the time. I mean, this is catastrophic damage to rangelands. Um, managed populations uh, are just fine. And, and we see that, right, in places where there's off-range holding, where contractors are managing these horses. They can, they can move them. They can, uh, they can supplement feed. They can take the actions needed to make sure they don't damage resources, uh, just like we would with cattle or sheep or anything else. Um, on-range is, is where it's just, uh, it's just kind of an unmitigated disaster area, quite frankly. All right, so this was a big step. We'll see where it goes from here, but uh, it's been a controversial and ongoing issue for a number of years maybe this will help get us moving in the right direction for to some kind of a uh, point where the issue can be addressed where both sides are happy that that's been pretty elusive so far ethan that's the goal and i but i can tell you we're, we're closer to something like that today than any of my years in washington and that's a good feeling that's good news all right thank you good to talk with you ethan thank you talk soon Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, latest on that wild horse situation and uh, how to best manage that situation, care for those animals, and uh, get it down to a manageable number. All right, that wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. There is more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.